You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this uh, fourth lecture, uh, we're turning to the thought of uh, John Henry Cardinal uh, Newman. As I mentioned at the outset, it is noteworthy that it's possible for us to look back at the 19th century and see it in terms of Kierkegaard and Newman. It would be possible, obviously, to refer to it in terms of other thinkers, Marx, of course, would be another possibility. And towards the end of the century, Nietzsche. It's interesting that with respect to such possibilities as those, they were relatively obscure in the 19th century, so that it's in retrospect that they loom large. This is less true of Newman than it is of Kierkegaard, or indeed of Marx or Nietzsche, who were not widely known in their own time. Whereas Newman was a a figure well-known in England, certainly, and a figure of great controversy throughout his long life. Kierkegaard's life is bracketed by Newman's dates, as I mentioned before. Kierkegaard living from 1813 to 1855, whereas Newman was born in London in 1801 and died in Birmingham in 1890. So his life almost spans the 19th century. And he Although I am looking at it in that century in terms of these two great religious thinkers, they were not obviously defining of the century, or certainly we might say perhaps more accurately, they were not in tune with their century. Both of them were rather severe critics of dominant currents of thought, both mainly theological, of course, views on Christianity, but also on wider issues, as we will be seeing. Newman, as I said, was born in London in 1801. I'm going to give here a brief sketch of a very long life. These are the high points. He went in 1808 at the age of seven to Ealing School. And then in 1817, as you can see, he's quite a young man, he entered Oxford Trinity College. He took his BA in 1820, and it was not a very successful termination of his academic career. He didn't get the honors that everyone expected him to get, uh, and it's often referred to as a poor degree, a poor bachelor's. He was enamored, of course, of Oxford and was not inclined simply to go off as the result of this disappointment. And a few years later in 1822, he was elected a fellow of Oriel College and eventually became a tutor of that college. And for the rest of his Oxford career, that was the setting of Newman as an Oxford Don. But in the manner, as we know, universities were founded as clerical institution. And to be a clerk, or be a student, was to be a clerk. Remember that line of Chaucer, a clerk of Oxenford, a cleric. So that in the Middle Ages, the students all had clerical status, which meant minimally that they had received tonsure, which set them off from the laity, and of course that was the setting for controversies between town and gown. In Newman's time, there was still the tradition that the fellows of colleges were clerics. And Newman took orders in the English church in 1825. He was ordained an Anglican priest in 1825 at the age of 24. 
And that, we might say, was not only a significant event ecclesiastically, but also from a university point of view, because this consolidated his position in the university. In 1832, he went off with a friend of his on a trip to Europe, mainly Italy, Sicily, and Malta. And he visited Rome at that time, and of course he had a very negative attitude towards Rome, and in a way that he would document later, he was at once fascinated by the popular piety that he saw and repelled by it. Thoughts of superstition, of course, rose in his mind. But this is a very interesting period, interlude, we might say, in Newman's life. His friend returned to England, and then he went to Sicily, where he fell ill, and he lay ill for quite some months there. And when he recounts the history of his religious opinions in the Apologia, which we will be looking at at some length during these coming lectures, he tells us very little about that period. And Ian Carr, who was his biographer and editor and author of many books on Newman, in his preface to his edition of the Apologia Provita Sua, reflects that perhaps there were events there that Newman didn't want to go into in this account of his religious opinions, but Carr has found elsewhere rather lengthy descriptions and discussions of that time. It gave Newman time to reflect on where he was religiously. He had been raised or he had been more or less converted to a very evangelical mode of religion as a young man and when he abandoned that it was because of the want of the what he called the dogmatic principle that is what is the object of religious faith the evangelical it's as if he thought there was too much emphasis on the subjective condition of the believer and Newman began to notice again a privation of discussion of well what does faith bear on what is it that one believes that roughly would be what he meant by the dogmatic principle he became a very high church anglican during his oxford years and he pondered he was constantly like kierkegaard a very self-reflective man very self-conscious not in a morally negative sense but simply constantly monitoring we might say his personal life and his beliefs and his attitude but when he was returning to england from sicily the ship was becalmed off the coast of sicily for some time and it was during that episode that newman wrote the famous hymn, known in all denominations, Lead Kindly Light. Let me just remind you of some stanzas from that beautiful hymn. It's called The Pillar of the Cloud as a poem. Lead kindly light amid the encircling gloom, lead thou me on. The night is dark and I am far from home, lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet, I do not ask to see the distant scene, one step enough for me. I was not ever thus, nor prayed that thou shouldst lead me on. I love to choose and see my path, but now lead thou me on. I love the garish day, and spite of fears, pride ruled my will, remember not past years. He does tell us in the Apologia that he was filled with a sense of mission as he returned to England from this extended stay, extended because of his illness, and in a memorable phrase, much quoted, I have a work 
to do in England, he said. And exactly what that was to be was unclear to him at that time, but when he returned to the university, he found that what was called the Oxford Movement had already, or the Tractarian Movement, had already begun under the influence of John Keeble, a man for whom Newman retained throughout his life a deep respect and of whom he speaks in terms which are extremely laudatory. One of the sadnesses of his conversion to Catholicism, when of course he had to leave the University of Oxford, was that he was separated from Keeble and through long years the two men were not in contact with one another physically or in any other way. When I mentioned that as an autobiographical note, that when I was a boy, I read a Life of Newman called The Red Hat, and I remember associating Newman intimately with the University of Oxford, which I knew only, of course, through what was said about it in that particular book. But the identification of Newman with Oxford is something which is certainly part of his biography, and in subsequent history, he's much commemorated at that university to this day, recognized as one of its great luminaries. The Oxford Movement, I'll be saying a little bit more about that, but let me just mention the range of his writings. We saw the tremendous literary output of Kierkegaard, books just spilling from his pen at a high rate over a short number of years. Newman's production is more measured, we might say. His first book was published when he was 31 years old, The Arians of the Fourth Century, and he was interested, of course, in this massive heresy that shook the church at that time, and the Arians seemed to be in the ascendancy, a Christological controversy, as you know. Most of Newman's writings were, as we say, occasional. They were just things that happened to be written because of circumstances in which he found himself. But among his writings, we'll find, of course, sermons. Newman was a famous preacher. His university sermons at St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford were legendary, within the city of Oxford at least. He wrote polemical works at every stage of his religious development. He was a poet. He was a novelist. He wrote two novels. He wrote treatises, the grammar of ascent, of course, being the chief thing that I would think of there, and hymns, such as the one that I just reminded you of. There are as well thousands upon thousands of letters of Newman, which now have been brought together in huge volumes which march across the shelf. Someone has said rather jocularly that one reason Newman will never be canonized is that he wrote too many letters. And they're very revealing of him. He's a very emotional man, a very sentimental man in many respects, and he was not loath to call attention to his own shortcomings, and perhaps is the reason for the somewhat, I hope, exaggerated notion that he will never be canonized. He is venerable. There is the cause of his canonization has been underway for some time. Rather surprising given the number of men and women who have been canonized by the present Pope, John Paul II, more than in all previous times, someone has said. It's very surprising that Newman has not been numbered among them. Of course, there are requirements for this other than the desire of the Pope to declare that someone is indeed a saint. He's mentioned with great respect, along with others, in John Paul II's encyclical Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. One can get the impression, in looking at the shelf of Newman's works, that he was never without a pen in his hand when you add to the published works the letters. But it might be said, I think, without exaggeration, that the only planned book 
in Newman's production was The Grammar of Ascent. This is a book that he wanted to write throughout his life and published it very late in his life in 1870. Newman was made a cardinal in 1879 and he died in 1890. The Oxford movement that I mentioned was what led uh, eventually somewhat to Newman's surprise, he certainly would have been surprised at the beginning of it, to, of that movement and his involvement in it, led to his conversion to Catholicism. He moved in 1842 to a little town outside Oxford, Littlemore, after he'd published Track 90, which he will describe it, expressed the fact that he was on his deathbed as an Anglican. Littlemore is still there. The first time I saw it, it looked like a kind of chicken coop. It's a little L-shaped building in which Newman and friends of his lived in a kind of religious community. Then it fell into disuse and disrepair, but in recent years it has been taken over by a group of nuns who have restored it and more than restored it to its original splendor. And it's a great pleasure now to visit there, their library, their chapel, and to sense their great devotion to Cardinal Newman. It's hard to say that a book of Newman's is the most famous, but certainly if you had to pick one and then want to argue about it, to pick the Apologia Pro Vita Sua would not be too daring a thing to do. Newman had converted to Catholicism, and this was a matter of great disturbance to many of his friends in the Oxford movement and to many members of the English church for reasons that will become clear when I talk about the details of the Oxford movement as they emerge from this book, The Apologia Pro Vita Sua. It was an occasional book in the sense that what occasioned it was an attack on Newman by Charles Kingsley, who was also an Anglican priest and who accused Newman of being untruthful and whatever he said would have to be filtered through some kind of abstruse Catholic casuistry to find out what he really meant. He might very well mean the opposite of what he said and so forth. Newman was, of course, incensed by this because he took it to be an attack not simply on himself, but on the Catholic priesthood. But what he did in response to this attack by Charles Kingsley was to take that occasion to recount the history of his conversion. And it's as if he had been asked, what is the clinching argument that led you to move from the Anglican Church to the Roman Catholic Church? What is the argument? And Newman, in responding to that, decided that the only way he could possibly convey to someone who was genuinely interested in this how this had come about would be to give what he called the history of my religious opinion from the time he was a young boy through the Oxford movement and then to his eventual conversion, which is effectively where the book ends. Once Newman became a Catholic, he said the history of his religious opinions had reached its term and there were no further changes in view. What Newman, in short, is suggesting here is that a religious conversion certainly in his case involves a great many arguments and historical inquiry and so forth, but the conversion itself is not to be reducible to abstract argument. So that we find in the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, the apology for his life by John Henry Newman, we find in effect the story of the development of his own personal religious views, which involves arguments, but there's a kind of gap between the arguments and their having a personal impact on him. And that's the message, we might say, of the apologia that in matters like a religious conversion, 
However great a role arguments may play, greater or lesser in the case of individual, it is the personal and appetitive, we might say, emotional, imaginative, that plays a key role. I'm not interested, he said, in trying to establish the truth of the Catholic faith. I'm giving a personal and historical account of my life. And it's a very frank account. Newman gives all kinds of fuel to those who would want to take a negative attitude towards him. He's not putting the best possible construction on every stage of his own career. But what emerges is this sort of flow in which personal and objective or argumentative aspects just meld and interweave in such a way that there will be a gap between some realization of Newman's on an abstract level and any move on a personal level. It should be noted, of course, that when Newman talks about conversion, and conversion here, we might say, to employ a distinction that I invoked in talking about Kierkegaard, involves not simply a changing of one's mind, but a changing of one's life. And while we might think that Kierkegaard was a little short on any arguments that might be involved in this and put most of the emphasis on the existential, the personal, the changing one's life, in Newman these, as I indicate, go hand in hand. But just as Kierkegaard, when he talked about conversion or becoming a Christian, was addressing himself to nominal Christians, huh? so he's addressing himself to people who in some sense, however minimal, are already in Christianity, and he's trying to get them to really be in it, to realize what they profess, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, as I suggested before. In Newman's case, of course, it's not a question of a conversion to Christianity either, but moves within the Christian dispensation. I mentioned that well-turned phrase of David Swenson in which he compared Newman and Kierkegaard suggesting that Newman was looking for the objectively true church so that he could join it. Newman really was wanting, am I in the objectively true church? And that's where he wanted to be, and he wanted to be in it, not simply to have arguments on its behalf. But there's little doubt of the fact that the objective, the historical, the argumentative play uh, key roles in Newman's notion of conversion, but they're not the decisive thing. He could change his mind as he did, and he will recount this in the Apologia, but the personal lags behind that very often, and he wanted to reflect on that. And indeed, we could say that this notion that in another lapidary phrase from the Apologia, great things take time, he had from a very early age reflected on the relationship between faith and reason. In some of the Oxford University sermons, he will talk explicitly about this relationship between faith and reason, between implicit reason and explicit reason. And one of the things that he, in his pastoral mode, is concerned to show is that the faith of the simple is a reasonable stance. It is not something irrational, it is not something that awaits reasoning of an abstract sort and so forth, but as it is, the simple believer is performing a human, that is a rational or reasonable act, and Newman in those sermons reflected on what kind of reasonableness one would want to recognize in, say, the faith of the simple, and indeed, as he would say, in the faith of the sophisticated as well. One of the realizations that emerges from considerations of this kind, and I say these are already present in the Oxford University sermons, which date from 
his mid-twenties and thereafter, is this notion of reasonable. What does that mean? Is there a single sense of reasonable? And what emerges from it is this realization, it is unreasonable to think that reasonable always means the same thing. Now, when he does this, Newman is on his way to critical reflections on certain dominant philosophical currents. We saw that in the case of Kierkegaard, his defense of Christianity and what it means to be a Christian is, in effect, an attack on such efforts as those of Immanuel Kant in Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone and against Hegel, who was far more his mentor. He thought that they had turned Christianity either into just ordinary common sense, that there wasn't anything particular about it, and Jesus wasn't a teacher in any sense different, let's say, than Socrates, or they had tended to make it so sophisticated and abstract that it seemed to bear a little relationship to the concrete beliefs and practices of Christian. Now, Newman, in these reflections about the reasonableness of belief, which, as I say, start early and see them reach their fruition, in a sense, in the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, he is, in effect, implicitly criticizing, and he will do this explicitly as time goes on, certain dominant philosophical currents of his time. Newman was not a philosopher, but he was an Oxford graduate, and we might say he had a more than a gentleman's understanding of philosophy. He knew the British empiricists, and he knew, with a negative attitude towards it, the utilitarianism of Mill. And indeed, this is one of the targets of opportunity for Newman in his controversial modes. But what I'm suggesting here is that early on in his career in the Oxford University sermons and reflecting on faith and reason, on implicit and explicit reasoning, Newman is in effect amounting a criticism against what we might call the imperialism of abstract reason among the philosophers. And he would ask, what does it mean reasonably to assent to something as true? And philosophers, of course, would give a very sophisticated account of this. And in doing so, they would be using meanings of truth and assent and so forth, which, let us say, they're among the most important logically. But they don't seem to count, they don't seem to fit the belief of the simple or indeed of the sophisticated. And even more broadly, we might say, what I'm calling here the imperialism of abstract reason, turns out to be an attack not simply on religious belief, but on ordinary human life. If reasonable means only what it is taken to mean by the imperialists of abstract reason, then we would have to say that 99% of human life is irrational or unreasonable, and not simply religious belief. So we find here a not uncommon sort of procedure when religious faith is being defended, and that is to suggest that if the arguments against faith obtain, they seem to fit or to work against most of what we do as human beings and not simply as believers. So it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that one of Newman's great aims was to defend the reasonableness of the faith of simple believers. And we're reminded of that phrase of Johannes Klimakus from Kierkegaard's postscript, 
that the simple man doesn't understand Christianity and the wise man understands that he doesn't understand Christianity. Newman would want to say, let's talk about what we mean by understand there, but if we take it to mean what the imperialists of abstract reason would mean, then Kierkegaard's mole would have its full force. It might be well to reflect for a moment on this defense that both Kierkegaard and Newman mount of the ordinary life and the role of reason in ordinary life. Empiricists, philosophers we might say, in the modern era have a way of speaking of knowledge and truth that seems to restrict them to admittedly important but nonetheless very limited uses within human life. And as I mentioned, this emphasis does run the danger of saying that 99% of what we do is irrational or even worse, and this was the burden of that unfinished philosophical novel of Kierkegaard's, Johannes Klimakus de Omnibus Dubitandum Est, it's worse, it would seem as if the project of epistemology is something that must be generalized over human life as such, so that the empiricists, as the name suggests, tended to take physical science as a kind of model and suggest that hypotheses have to be verified by appeal to empirical data and until and unless they are, they're simply not to count as truths. If one tried to apply this to his life as a whole, what would result? We would overlook the fact, St. Augustine and many others would point out, that faith is an absolute necessity for ordinary human life whereby faith, he means, are trusting in one another, are taking other people's words for things that we certainly haven't verified in any kind of scientific or empirical way. And the suggestion further is that we can't do that, that this is an ineradicable factor of human life, our trusting one another. If someone asks us, where were you born? We would answer immediately, I suppose. But if someone asks, how do you know that? We would say, well, my parents told me, or I saw it on a birth certificate, and so forth. And if someone were in the grips of a certain kind of philosophizing, he might say, but how do you know that's true? I mean, have you ever checked that out? Have you ever verified that? Well, have you ever verified who are your parents? Most people just take it for granted that the person who calls himself mama is their mother, and so too with their father. They don't consider this a research project that is being dumped in their lap, such that they're going to have to get a grant from the NEH and find out if their parents are imposters or indeed their progenitors. Does Peking exist? If you think of all of our assumptions as we read the papers, we listen to the news and so forth, I mean, we're taking all kinds of risks here from an epistemological point of view, as a certain kind of philosopher would think, and we're giving our assent to things on insufficient data and insufficient evidence. Just taking other people's words, when you think of the greatest event in the lives of most of us when we marry, when a man and a woman pledge themselves for life to one another, I mean, this is not a prediction, it is not a description of any state of affairs, it's the taking on of a promise of a way of life that there is no way of knowing in advance in a narrow empirical sense how it's going to turn out. And very often disgruntled spouses will say, I didn't know what I was getting into. Well, what would be the alternative? Does anyone know what he's getting into when he does anything whatsoever? Marriage isn't a research project. It's not a long inquiry to see if things will turn out as someone promised. It's making things turn out in a certain way. When we reflect on things like this, that is the lives that we lead. And as I mentioned, with respect to the implicit criticism of Descartes, it's not always just implicit. 
In Kierkegaard, the effort to doubt all those things for which we do not have a certain kind of evidence would lead to, okay, we couldn't do it. It isn't as if it's a project that we really had the nerve. We'd go ahead and doubt everything. You can't doubt everything. It's just an impossibility. Now, of course, when we talk about the ineradicable presence of faith and trust in our ordinary lives, this is some kind of preparation for talking about religious faith but it's not a nice fit. I mean, to believe in Christ, to accept the truths of Christianity is not simply like taking your Uncle George's word for the fact that Valparaiso, Indiana exists down the road from where I'm speaking. Let's say I've never been to that valley of paradise, but my Uncle George assures me that it's there, and I take his word for it. Well, my life, again, is just replete with such things as that. Now, one could say about that that, well, I could drive down the road and see if Valparaiso is there. And that's true. So you might say that, you know, I'm trusting my uncle on this, but I don't have to. That's kind of expedient. And I could replace it by knowledge. And then I'd say Valparaiso is down the road a piece, and I wouldn't add, as my uncle George told me. I mean, that would be irrelevant. Now I know it myself. I've seen this magnificent metropolis with my own eyes and needn't uh, take anyone's word for it. And we could then suggest that maybe all of the things that we accept on trust are such that they could be verified in that way. There's nothing about what we are told that makes it beyond our ability to check it out. I could go to where I was said to be born and look for the bronze plaque or the statue in the public square, or more likely the records in the courthouse, and there little Ralphie is written down there, February 24th, 1929. There is that proof positive. I get a photostat, I carry it around with me, and when people call into question my birthplace, I can pull it out. Here is evidence. I know I was born there. Well, a real methodic doubter would just be starting if you did that. He'd want to know about who keeps the books in the courthouse and how do you know and all this sort of thing. But we could, in short, say that's verification enough. And so too, we could take DNA tests and figure out whether our parents really are our parents and so forth and whether we ought to accept the inheritance that they leave us, whether we can honestly do that. Of course, we'd be very conscientious in that regard. But we could verify it. So someone might say, well, sure, human trust and human faith is pervasive in human life, but there's nothing about any one of those items that removes it from the fact that I might check it out and find out if that's true. But what we would have to recognize and what gives the bite to De Omnibus Dubitandum Est of Kierkegaard is that while any one of these things, we might say, one could talk a bit about this, but let's grant that any one of these things might be checked out and verified, the totality of them could not be. It would be a practical impossibility. So if one were to make checkability or verification the requirement for anything that we hold to be true that we're certain of, this would remove 99% of the truths on the basis of which we lead our life. Now, the modalities of reasonableness, these interested Newman from the very beginning, and he was interested in them, of course, in the sermons from the point of view of Christian belief, the reasonableness of the belief 
of simple people and indeed of sophisticated people as well whose beliefs are not grounded on, as Kierkegaard insisted, verification processes of the kind that are apropos in the sciences or in history and the like. What we found in Kierkegaard we're going to find in Newman as well. This appeal to ordinary life is not idle even though one can't say faith in this ordinary sense is exactly like religious faith. But there is a kind of movement here, a kind of progression, which enables us to understand what religious faith is and in understanding it, see how it differs in significant ways from faith in other senses. And you can see this is roughly what Newman is after. We know what reasonable means in the sense that the empiricist philosopher will give it. It's the kind of thing that goes on in laboratories. But how often is anyone in a laboratory? How about getting to work on the part of the lab technician? How about leaving work? How about getting married and all the rest of it? These don't seem to be research projects of the kind that lead us to call him a physicist or a biologist. So just as there we want to talk about the modalities of reasonableness, we could talk about the modalities of faith or believing. And while we don't want to reduce the one to the other, we can let the one cast some kind of light on the other, but we don't want to let it tyrannize over our lives in such a way that we're all committed to seeing our lives and our interactions with other people on the model, as I put it, a research project, such that we're committed on pain of being irrational to verifying and checking out everything that is said and not giving our assent until the evidence weighs heavily in favor of the proposition and so forth. A further aspect of this, just by way of reminder, as I turn now to the Apologia in itself, is the way in which both Kierkegaard and Newman will see the moral or the ethical as a kind of analog to the religious. Not identical, but analog, so that in reflecting on what it is for a human being to act, to decide, to exist in that moral sense, one begins to perceive what divine faith is like, and of course, unlike. But in both cases, we're very unlikely to think that when I make up my mind, let's say, to cross the campus and go to, say, the Morris Inn to have lunch, that this sort of decision and the like is like something that would get a report from a, say, biologist lab and so on. So that the reflection on what is going on when we are actually acting and acting reasonably is a kind of prelude to or kind of analog to our understanding of Christian faith. That was the point in talking about the subjectivity is the truth and that definition of faith that Climacus gives us in the postscript of Kierkegaard. That was the point of noticing that it bears a lot of similarity to what Aristotle has to say about action, practical action, practical reasoning, and what Aristotle calls practical truth, the practical truth of the deed done of the ultimate decision which is embodied in the act. I'll be returning to that because it seems to me this is one of the great common points in Kierkegaard and Newman. All of this, the terribly interesting as it is, is simply a prelude now to turning to this central work of John Henry Newman, the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which in effect is a response to a demand that he come clean and tell us what was the big knockdown, drag out argument that led him to abandon the English church and to become a Roman Catholic. So now the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, 
an occasion, a work occasioned by the attack on Newman by Charles Kingsley, which was first produced in a series of pamphlets and subsequently brought together in the book that we know by this particular title. Whether Newman from the very outset realized that he was embarking on this massive personal account of his religious beliefs is perhaps unclear, but it dawned on him that here is my chance, and many of his biographers will say he seized upon it because he wanted to express to his fellow Englishmen just what had happened, because he was aware of the fact that many people were astounded or disappointed or angered by his conversion, and it effectively uh, took him out of the loop that he had been in for most of his life, and while he had withdrawn to Littlemore, he was outside the university for the rest of his life. At that time, in 1843, when he was converted, he had been in the university for 25 years. He was 45 years old at that time, so it was 45, 46. He was destined to live again as long as he had lived up to that point. But throughout many of those intervening years after his conversion, he knew that there was a great deal of criticism of him had he been less than candid in the writings that he had written in his Anglican years? Was he perhaps a Roman mole from the beginning who was assigned to subvert the English church and had misled people into thinking that these various considerations were not leading to where they were leading? One of the not unsurprising features of Newman's own conversion was the active way in which he dissuaded other people from converting, both before he did. Many people saw the sense of or the direction of his writings before he did and entered the Roman Catholic Church. But before and after his own conversion, Newman was not a missionary trying to get Anglicans, not at first, to come into the Roman Church. He did publish a very polemical work on the difficulties of Anglicans with the Catholic Church, but this was on a level of some generality. When it came to friends of his who would appeal, my son is thinking of going over to Rome, will you talk to him? And he would accept that kind of assignment. It's a somewhat surprising thing. So what we don't get here is the idea of someone, the Pied Piper of the Oxford movement, seeking to lead a whole army of Anglicans into the Roman Church. As a matter of fact, that happened. Any number of people ascribed their conversion to reading Newman and pondering what he had written oftentimes in terms of personal contacts with him. Gerard Manley Hopkins, the poet who became a Jesuit and subsequently taught in that Irish university of which Newman was to be unhappily for eight years the rector, came into the church under the influence of Newman. And like so many other converts, his parents were outraged at it and it was by way of becoming a kind of pariah when one abandoned the English church for the Roman church. Part of this was social. Part of this was social. When Newman came into the church, there was a scruffy little Italian passionist who showed up at the providential moment at Littlemore and received him into the church. Newman had built a church in Littlemore with money given him by his sister with the memorable name of Jemima, a church which is still there, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful place. But once he became a Catholic, he went off to a lesser edifice where immigrants and, shall we use the term, Irish, would tend to predominate. So it was a step down socially, the sort of working class, the less than English, the not gentlemen, and so forth. 
This was part, but certainly not the whole, of people's misgivings when children of their sons and daughters, under the influence of Newman, decided to enter the Roman Church. Well, now let's look at the Apologia. I mentioned that when Newman was in Sicily, he went through a great deal of self-reflection and scrutiny and returned with the notion, I have a work to do in England. The England to which he returned was an England where what came to be called the Oxford Movement had been put underway by a tract of Keeble. But I want to refer to Newman's mention of Keeble in terms of a work of his called The Christian Year that Keeble published in 1827, just a couple of years after Newman had become an Anglican priest. He said, the two main intellectual truths which this work of Keeble brought home to me were the same two which I had learned from Butler, Bishop Butler, though recast in the creative mind of my new master. What were those two main intellectual truths? He's reminded of them by Keeble. He had learned them first from reading Butler's famous book on analogy. The first of these was what may be called, in a large sense of the term, the sacramental system. That is, the doctrine that material phenomena are both the types and the instruments of real things unseen. A doctrine which embraces in its fullness not only what Anglicans as well as Catholics believe about sacraments properly so-called, but also the article of the communion of saints, likewise the mysteries of faith. One is reminded here of Hopkins, since I mentioned him, his notion of inscape, the way in which physical things show forth the glory of God, calling the psalmist. This is an element, this is what is meant by the sacramental system, not simply the sacraments and the sense of baptism and confirmation and the Eucharist and matrimony and so forth, but the way in which the world itself is by way of being a sign of the sacred, calling our minds to something beyond itself. So the sacramental system, that was one of the things that was brought home to him again by reading Keeble's The Christian Year. And the second intellectual principle, which I gained from Mr. Keeble, I could say a great deal on it. He could say a great deal if this were the place for it. It runs through very much that I have written and has gained for me many hard names. Butler teaches us that probability is the guide of life. Probability is the guide of life. Now that maxim is something to which Newman adhered. We'll see him coming back to it in the grammar of ascent. Probability is the guide of life. Now notice that this probability would accordingly define the reasonableness of 99% of the things that human beings do. We act on probabilities, not on the certainties of, let's say, the rationalist or the imperial philosopher that I mentioned some time ago. Probability is the guide of life. Doesn't this remind us of Kierkegaard's pseudonym's Climacus definition of faith in the postscript? An objective uncertainty held fast in an appropriation process of the most passionate inwardness. So too, Newman is going to reflect on the way in which probabilities converge on a point where a certain kind of ascent is difficult or impossible to withhold. So that along with the kind of arguments and historical considerations, and there are many in the Apologia, there will be this kind of personal convergence of probabilities that leads him to the moment of his conversion. 
And what Newman is saying is not that there is some kind of logic in this such that anyone who had experienced the same things would necessarily do what he did. There's something very personal about it and somewhat unique. But this is the story, as he would say, of my conversion. I'm giving you the history of a personal conversion and not abstract arguments for the truth of Catholicism. A very disarming kind of assertion and one to which we will want to return and to the context in which it functions in our next lecture when we'll continue. Uh, to talk about this uh, landmark book of uh, Newman, the Apologia Pro Vita Sua. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.